Support for today's show comes from Locker Room, the best place to talk sports. Make sure to follow me on Locker Room at Jake Reiner, and I'll invite you to chat on my weekly baseball room, uniquely titled Meeting on the Mound. Download Locker Room for free on the Apple App Store today and join the conversation. So I got traded at the deadline, and I landed. I, I took the red eye to Baltimore from San Diego and uh, basically slept in the clubhouse because it was a day game the next day. So I just slept in the clubhouse, and uh, every guy on that team, except for maybe the guy I replaced, I don't know who, who I replaced, but came up to me and shook my hand and said, great to have you here, you know, don't F this thing up, you know, kind of <laughs> stuff like that. So I kind of appreciated that at the time. I'm like, okay, these guys get it. So there's a lot to discuss with my next guest, not only about his baseball career as a role player or journeyman, but also the team he broadcasts for, the Houston Astros. We're talking about Jeff Blum. Jeff, welcome to Meeting on the Mound. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. Good to be on with you. Thank you. Of course, man. So for those of you that don't know, Jeff has been the main TV color analyst for the Astros for the past eight seasons. He had a long big league career spanning 14 years with the Montreal Expos, Houston Astros, San Diego Padres, Chicago White Sox, and Arizona Diamondbacks. He's a, he was a switch hitter, so Blum was known as one of the top pinch hitters and utility players in the game, appearing at all four infield positions for nine straight seasons from 2000 to 2008. I had to look that up, but that's an <laughs> amazing feat. And he also won a World Series with the White Sox in 2005. And Jeff, I just kind of wanted to start in 2005 because you had one of the biggest at-bats in that series. It was a go-ahead home run in the 14th inning of Game 3. And what's also interesting about that is that you hit it against your former team, the Astros, in Minute Maid Park. So there was a lot of factors at play, obviously, but I just kind of want to get your thoughts on what that moment was like for you. Uh, arguably the best moment of my career. Uh, there were, there were some highlights in there, but when you get to the pinnacle of your profession and get a chance to play at the, at the top level and be considered one of the greatest teams of all time, you know, that's what, uh, basically qualifies us for the greatest at bat of my career because we made it to the world series and it took 14 innings to get me into the game. But eventually when I got in there, it was a tie game five, five at the time. And I came up with two outs and nobody on. And uh, all I was thinking about was trying to get on base for the guys behind me because that White Sox lineup was stacked. And I was just one of those peripheral guys, those complimentary or role players like you're talking about. And it just so happened that uh, I got in a hitter's count and the pitcher missed a spot by a good foot and a half and I didn't (laughs) miss it. Yeah. And I'm sure you were happy with how, because in Minute Maid Park, there is that short porch kind of in right field and you hit a a line drive that just like just got out of there in a hurry yeah no it was a bullet too and you know it's funny you you talk about that and the you know the bitter sweetness of doing it against a team that I was with just a year before Uh, so I knew a lot of guys in that dugout I knew a lot of guys on those on that field but uh, 
you know, when you put on the opposing uniform, your job is to go out there and beat them. But as I connected with that baseball and saw the low trajectory that you're talking about, my initial thought was, man, if this thing bounce off, bounces off the wall and I don't make it to second base, it's going to be pretty embarrassing. So I yeah. put my head down immediately and, uh, you know, took a good hard three steps out of the box to make sure that I had a good jump to try and get to second base. And by the time I got done with those three steps, I looked up and uh, realized that the ball had hit, you know, about five or six rows up and it bounced back on the field. And Tim Raines was about eight feet off the ground with the fist in the air. And that's when I kind of clicked to me that, oh, man, something great just happened. So when it bounced back onto the field, was there a moment in your head going like, oh, no, it's a it's off the wall. It's, <laughs> it's I'm going to have to make it to second. Uh, fortunately, I saw the ball go out. So oh, good, I, good. you were watching the baseball. That's good. Yeah, no, I, I had a real good idea where it was going, but I, I, you know, I took the good hard three steps to make sure I was in position in case it hit off the top of the wall or it got knocked back in play by the player. But, uh, you know, I saw it hit the stand, hit this, you know, it hit the steps, you know, the walkway going down that right field uh, bleacher and bounced back on the field. And uh, that's when, uh, you know, everything went real quiet for a while. Yeah, no kidding. You could hear a pin drop at that stadium. Um, that was an incredible moment for you, I'm sure, obviously, uh, for, for your career, like you mentioned. And interestingly enough, that was your only at-bat in the World Series. And it and you knew you were going to at least have one at-bat, I'm assuming, because you came into the game in a double switch in the previous inning. Mm-hmm. So how did you get mentally prepared to get ready for that one? You knew you had one at-bat to get ready oh, for man. Yeah, it, it was an interesting situation because, like you're talking about, the previous inning, uh, I think Tariito Aguchi was up third, and then the pitcher was up either – I think the pitcher was up fifth that fifth or sixth that inning, and uh, um, Ozzie Guillen came to me and Pablo Azuna, the only two players left on the roster, uh, and he said, Pablo, if it's a double switch, you're going to go in for Tariito. And then he said, Blummer, if the pitcher comes up, you're going to pinch hit for him. So I was dead set on I'm going to pinch hit – uh, you know, no matter what the situation is, I'm going to figure it out and I'm going to go hit nothing else. And then, you know, Ozzy and all of his, his wonderment and craziness kind of <laughs> looked at me and said, looked at Pablo and, you know, and kind of went blunder, you go to second base. So I was completely caught off guard, had to find my glove to go play second base. And then I come up in that situation in the top of the 14th inning, the game was still tied five, five, but where I was in position in that lineup was, is, you know, uh, Jermaine Dye was leading off. Paul Konerko was hitting second. And Jermaine Dye was well on his way to winning the World Series MVP because he was absolutely lighting it up. Oh, yeah. So, of course, he leads off with a base hit. Now, Paul Konerko goes up and digs in, and I take my place on deck. And I'm kind of looking at the situation in a tie ball game. And I'm going, man, the way PK has been swinging it, he may end up on base right here. And I immediately thought, it's going to be first and second, nobody out, and I am going to have to lay down a freaking bunt. <laughs> and you talk about trying to mentally convince yourself that you're going to lay down a bunt in your only World Series at bat. Uh, that that was a lot of uh, internal strife going on at the time while the game is going on. But fortunately, as it turned out, Paul Konerko hit into a double play that Morgan Ensberg and Vizcaino turned a great play on. And uh, this is going to sound terrible, but 
when that double play was completed, I actually had a sigh of relief knowing I didn't have to go up there and bunt. I was so, going to say, you uh, said, fortunately, your teammate <laughs> grounded into a double play. I don't think anyone's ever said that. I know. I, I should be looking forward to advancing the team and doing my best to sacrifice bunt to move that runner over and and help us win the game. But I was I was not too comfortable with my bunting uh, prowess at the time, and especially with that added pressure in that situation to be in the World Series. So I can say it now that we won the World Series that I'm grateful that that happened. Yeah, no kidding. And so what do you think it was, uh, Ozzy Gian kind of, you, you were talking about you, your words, you called him, a, you know, a little crazy. Um, he was a bit out there with, uh, you know, mm-hmm. his personality, obviously. What do you think went through his mind when he decided at the last second to send you out there to, as a defensive replacement? Um, at the at the time, you know, a little bit of ego kicks in and goes, yeah, I, I should be the guy going in. But now that, uh, you know, we're 15, 16 years past the situation and hearing the stories that have come out of the situation, it was more of an understanding that, you know, Joey Cora had a voice and, uh, you know, there was a couple other coaches uh, that were on the bench that maybe had a voice and got in Ozzy's ear. And I think for whatever reason, something clicked with Ozzy, maybe realizing that they were going to need the speed of Pablo Ozuna maybe later. You know, if I got on base, maybe they pinch run Pablo for me. But, uh, and I was also, I, I think it was because, you know, if I had to get in his, in his shoes a little bit and think, and, you know, looking back on it now, uh, I was a little more of a threat power wise. You know, I had the opera, I had more doubles than Pablo. I had a little more home run power than Pablo, but Pablo had me in the speed and defense department. And uh, fortunately, Ozzy chose me. And fortunately I found my way into the history books. Yeah. I love, looking at moments like that because it could have gone so many different oh, ways. Um, so true. And, and, and even like you were saying, if Paul Canerco doesn't ground into a double play, maybe he draws a walk. It's a whole different scenario. <laughs> yeah. um, but one of the things we're trying to do with this podcast is trying to get as many answers to this question as possible, which is why do we love baseball? Why, why do we, you know, as, as players, as fans, why do we keep coming back and keep watching? And, and for you as someone that, um, has been, you know, around the league, many different teams, 14 seasons. Why, why is it, do you think that you kept coming back year after year and what, why do you love this game? Uh, well, the easy answer is money. <laughs> it was a career that I was lucky to be in, in involved in, but uh, again, I was playing on one-year contracts, but I think the appeal of, of baseball, you know, as a young kid is everybody played it. And uh, eventually the more talented and, you know, maybe the, the guys who worked a little bit harder begin to filter out and they start to come to the top of the top of the heap and you play a little bit. But I think what's so appealing just to, to the fan, you know, you know, and this is one of the things that gets talked about a lot in baseball is pace of play. And I think the pace of play actually lends itself to a little more of a thought process, a little more strategy, a little more. Uh, you know, enjoyment because you're not constantly bombarded with action where you've got to keep your eyes on the court or you got to keep your eyes on the field. And uh, when you go to a ball game, uh, you can kind of leisurely take in the action and see what's going on. You're going to see a player that's going to be your same size, same build, maybe same ability. And you go, wow, that guy made it happen. Maybe I could do that. You know, at least that's what I hope kids at home are thinking about when they watch guys like Jose Altuve or a George Springer or an Aaron Judge, you know, that's a pretty wide spectrum of physicality that has made their way into the big league level and done well. And and at the same time, you know, it's really become a generational thing. One thing I'm learning from being in the booth and, and, you know, having fans saying, Jeff, I loved watching you play. Now I love listening to you. And my dad brought me to the game when I was watching, you know, Cesar Cedeno and listening to Bill Brown, you know, there's, there's legacy there. There's generation, there's, 
there's that uh, common bond that kind of, you know, envelops every generation that you can relate to. And then all of a sudden it leads to conversation. Well, this guy was better than that guy at that time. And, you know, so I think that's incredibly interesting. But again, going back to pace of play, I think it lends itself to the conversation. I think it lends itself to to having the opportunity to maybe think outside the box or be a little more creative or be daring in a thought or, you know, wondering what a play, you know, player might do right here. Or if you were managing the team, what would you do right there? And then of course the prediction game, what's going to happen. The anticipation is one of those things I think really draws a lot of fans in. Yeah. And I think that fans that are drawn to baseball are always going to be drawn to baseball. And that's sort of the argument. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you mentioned the, you know, passing it down from generation to generation. I think that's how baseball is going to survive for for yeah. years and years to come because pace of play, while it could speed up the game and we've taken out rules like the intentional walk where you just send the guy to first base, you don't have to throw four wide ones, which is a fine rule, but I don't know if it saves that much time. I think people that are drawn to baseball are, like you said, people that can, you know, relax and take it in and really, you know, uh, study the game. And you made a great point about players that look like us, you know, they're, they're, they're short, they're fat, they're strong, you know, mm -hmm. they're all different types of players that are on the baseball field. It's very reflective. It's very, um, you know, American, uh, if, mm -hmm. if you will. And so I, I, I agree with you on that. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Thank you. So we're, we're talking about, uh, players like yourself, role players, journeymen, and, um, I wanted to ask you what you think defines a, a journeyman because because you uh, had a really long career and a lot of journeymen don't have that long of a career and will bounce around from team to team or may not even stay at the major league level. Yeah, you know, I think it's kind of an unfair, you know, maybe it's a stereotypical view of it. You know, when I hear journeyman, I hear about a guy who can't, who, who's good enough to be there, but not good enough to lock down a contract. Uh, you know, a multi-year contract. Now, I was lucky enough to, you know, play three years with Montreal, but um, three years with San Diego, five years with the Houston Astros. So I had some decent stints, but I never had that multi-year contract. So I think that's where the journeyman mentality or the journeyman, you know, uh, label kind of jumps in there a little bit. But at the same time, you know, you still have value. And I think that's what keeps you around a little bit longer. Uh, and a lot of that value may not necessarily be in what you see on the back of a baseball card, as far as statistics are concerned, maybe it's the way you handle yourself in the clubhouse. Maybe it's, you know, everybody says leadership and you immediately think superstar, but I think leadership in these team sports takes on a different idea when you have guys that are on the field, guys that lead by example, guys that lead by their voice, uh, you know, and then there's other guys who just kind of find a way to, to lead within the clubhouse. And that's kind of what I prided myself on was being a guy that, you know, if you were struggling, whether you were the best guy on the team or the worst guy on the team, you could come have a chat with me and we try and work things out. I, I, I made a point of watching everybody's at bat, uh, trying to see where they're at, seeing if I could offer advice if they come to me. Um, and then there was other situations where, you know, there may be too much of an expectation on other guys on the team. And I could that fall back and just be a guy that would maybe offer pieces of advice every once in a while or just get up and down the bench and encourage these guys. Um, but uh, it was also being prepared to contribute. I think that, you know, along with, uh, you know, those X factor type things that make you a likable guy in the clubhouse where you're not going to rock the boat, you're not going to complain about playing time, but you also have to be a guy that's, you know, really aware of what, when, when and what your opportunities are. And that's what I took a lot of pride in is always being prepared 
to be able to fill in, whether it be at first, second, third, short, or whether it was to pinch hit late in the game or early in the game. And, uh, you know, I was very lucky to be a very good athlete, have a very good arm and be able to hit from both sides of the plate. So the opportunities opened themselves up for me the more versatile I became. And I really took advantage of that. And I think that's what kept me around the game a long time was, you know, the ability to adapt and, uh, and succeed in certain moments and also to be adaptable within the clubhouse. Obviously, when we're talking about professional sports, there are, you know, huge egos involved at every single level throughout any different sport. And I think that it's interesting to see which players take on the sort of, uh, best teammate role, like you were describing of, of actually being like another coach in the clubhouse. Mm -hmm. And there are guys that are superstars like Mookie Betts, who I followed throughout the whole season. And he was always talking about how he's just, uh, another, uh, you know, another player on the team. Like he didn't <laughs> view himself as a superstar. He took a back mm -hmm. seat. He really worked with a lot of different players and helped them along. He watched the game much like you watched the game when you were in the dugout. Mm -hmm. How do you, um, develop that personality? Is it something that's just within you uh, as just a human being or how does it develop when, when you're a player? Are you, or do you recognize that maybe like, Hey, I'm not like the, you know, the superstar on the team or like, I'm not the, you know, the number three hitter going in, you know, into the, you know, lineup every single day. How does that, how does that personality uh, manifest? I think that once you get to the major league level, you have failed so many times that you appreciate the times that you do succeed. And you understand that those, you know, those, the, those times that you do succeed are few and far between, or maybe you get a bunch of them at once and you know how quickly it can be taken away. Because I think baseball is one of the most, baseball is the most humbling sport there is. It is the hardest thing to do in all of sports, I believe. Uh, hitting a round ball with a round bat or trying to get a baseball past a guy who has a bat and he's trying to hit it off you. And I think that's where, you know, guys like Mookie Betts are freaks anyways, just because they're so freakishly talented because they, they know what to say in a, in, in an interview situation. They know what to say in the clubhouse. They know how to be supportive yet be exceptional in comparison to the guy he's trying to uh, help support. So I think baseball, you know, baseball athletes kind of lend themselves to a little more humility than most because you are getting beat down so often and you can shoot. We saw it in uh, game six of the world series when Mookie Betts went out there, struck out twice against Blake Snell and then comes up and gets a double. So, you know, baseball will, will beat you down, but it will offer an opportunity for redemption. And I think that's where, you know, some of these guys really understand how hard this game is and how hard you have to work at it. And that's where you get kind of that combination of talent and humility, where you get some really good guys who understand what it means to, to succeed at a, at a high level and also fail at a high level. Definitely. And uh, I'm glad you brought that up because it, it is, you do fail more times than you succeed. And the players that succeed maybe 30% of the time, talking about batting average, they mm -hmm. fail seven out of 10. So it really, it really have to have to have that humbleness within you in order to stick around. And you stuck around a long time and you were talking about how you never got that sort of big multi-year uh, contract with any one team. Was it difficult for you to find like a, a true home and, and for other players that are like, that are like yourself that kind of bounce around from different team to different team? Did, did you find it difficult to find like a, a, a true spot for you or 
was it the or, or did Houston end up being the spot that really spoke to you? Um, Houston really didn't become a, a legitimate home for me until I came back and started broadcast with them again. And I could settle in and try and repair 2005 with the fan base out here. <laughs> yeah, that's a good a point. Of- <laughs> Cause you, you broke a lot of hearts that year. Yeah. And then I, and then I, I signed back with them in 2008, nine and 10. And that whole time it was a little bittersweet coming back too, because it was so fresh and still so new and, uh, you know, getting booed in your home uniform the first couple of times was a little interesting. And you just trying to find a way to play hard and, and win their hearts back. But, uh, you know, I don't, I, I, as far as finding a home, yeah, I wish I had a place. You know, when I signed with the San Diego Padres in 2005, that was as close to home as I ever played. So I was about 45 minutes, living 45 minutes north of San Diego in a city called San Clemente. And uh, my kids were born there, raised there. You know, that was their first house. And so I had, as far as home, San Diego might be the one place that I really considered home just because I had family, I had friends, uh, residency, whatever you want to call it. I commuted. I didn't rent a home when I was playing with San Diego. I lived in my house that I was in year round. So that was a real home base for me. And I had a good run there. It was great. uh, But eventually I had to leave in 2008 and go back to Houston. But um, I think when we all want to lay down our, our, you know, our, our legacy or lay down our, uh, you know, our, our careers in one spot, but I wasn't given that uh, opportunity. I just had to go where the paychecks were taking me and where the opportunities were given. I just find that so also tragic, but also hilarious at the same time of you, like just, you know, trying to stay, stick around with one team after the next. And you finally, you get back to Houston and you get booed (laughs) in your own home stadium. What was that like? Well, after you get past the fact that, you know, I had, I had a good year and, you know, I was with San Diego. We won the West in 2005, 2006. We played game 163 against Colorado in 2007. So we had a very good thing going in San Diego. And then Sandy Alderson came in, brought the analytics and blew things up. And, uh, you know, we had to move on. And, you know, there was a new general manager in in uh, Houston who called me up and I kind of laughingly, I told my, my agent calls me and goes, Hey, Houston wants to sign you. And I'm like, does he know the history here? Why would he (laughs) even think about bringing me back into his stadium? And he's like, who cares? He's offering you the most money and you've got to, you know, this is a great contract. There's an option. I'm like, okay. So, you know, the second you announce your signing and there you go, Jeff Blum, 2005 White Sox World Series champion, signs with the Houston Astros immediately, you know, and this is before I was on social media. So I had no idea what was going on, just reading the papers and, uh, you know, some of the things like that. And good old fashioned hate. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) the way way it used to be. Yeah, exactly. You had to go dig for it instead of having (laughs) it thrown at you. But, uh, uh, you know, once we got past that and got on the field, started to play a little bit, you know, it kind of wears off a little bit. But uh, at the same time, I had the same opportunity when I came back as a broadcaster to reopen that wound. Yeah, definitely. Um, So um, you played with uh, a number of different managers. Uh, You mentioned Ozzie Guillen as one of them. And he's Mm -hmm. obviously the the, I would I would assume the most colorful that you that you've worked with. Um, But who was your favorite manager out of all of them that you that you've played for? Oh, man, just one. That would that would be tough. It's really easy for me to say the one I did not like the most. And it was Lou Piniella with the Tampa Bay Rays. (laughs) Uh, he, He was easily the most grumpy, most negative unbearable human I've been around. <laughs> and, uh, I've got great He had that story. kind of face too. If you didn't know anything about <laughs> him and just looked at his face, you could kind of pick yeah. that up. 
Yeah, and just imagine that face showing up for 162 games. So, <laughs> you know, that that was a little bit rough, but I was very lucky. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. Bruce Bochy was probably the best manager. Bud Black mm-hmm. was really good who came in after him, but Bruce Bochy, just as far as understanding personnel and – and being, you know, as transparent as possible, being open to conversation and things like that. And he was incredibly aware of putting guys in situations to succeed. And that's what I loved about Bruce Bochy because, you know, he was a good catcher, wasn't a great catcher, understood the game. But when I played for him, he did such a great job of if, if we were blowing a team out or we were getting blown out, uh, he always got me in there for two at-bats. You know, if we were facing – you know, if we were facing somebody who I had great numbers against, I didn't even have to ask him. I knew I was going to be in the lineup. And that's where he was really good at figuring out how to put you in a position to succeed is because he wanted you to be comfortable and he wanted you to have success because he knew there were going to be situations later in games or later in the season uh, if we played as well as we we knew we could where he would have to rely on us uh, as far as us guys on the bench. And he gave us opportunities to keep us fresh and keep us engaged. So Bruce Bochy was great in that sense. But uh, the one guy I owe a lot to is uh, Felipe Alou, my first manager when I was in Montreal, because when I got called up, he put me at shortstop and let me play a younger, faster, you know, position as a larger, you know, you know, larger man. You know, <laughs> most guys are 5'10", running around, have some speed, but I was a good six foot three, six foot four, And he continued to put me at shortstop and gave me the opportunity to prove myself at the big league level as a shortstop. And that meant a lot to me personally, because all through my career, I had, I had you know, criticism of me being too big to play shortstop at the big league level. Uh, eventually, I did move to third base, played a little bit of first base, but played a majority of my career at third base. But he gave me, ultimately, the opportunity to prove I could play at shortstop. So I'll forever be grateful for Felipe Alou. Yeah, a terrific, terrific baseball mind for sure. Yeah. Um, for to that point about staying ready for the big moment or just a moment, because you don't know <laughs> on any given day when you're going to play. Maybe you do. Maybe they maybe they tell you before, like, hey, you're you're playing today. But it's not like an everyday thing where you know yeah. for for sure you're in the lineup. What is that like to come to the ballpark and not know if you're going to be in the lineup or when you might you know play or not play during the game? Um, it's it's not that bad. You know, because you have to, in order to succeed, I think you have to understand who you are and how you handle the position you're in. And I knew the position I was in. Uh, And if I didn't, you know, relish in the fact that I was able to play multiple positions and be on a big league roster and work hard, I don't think I would be, I would have hung around as long as I did. So as far as mindset and preparing for that, I literally every day woke up as if I was going to be in the starting lineup. Because I felt like if I didn't prepare in that way, I would all of a sudden find myself in a game situation where I was unprepared. And that, that was the last thing I ever wanted to do. And that's the one thing I've learned is that, you know, even being in the booth or even being a parent, you know, the more prepared I am, the better I am going to be as a broadcaster, the better I'm going to be. Shoot, we talked before the podcast, you were giving me some prep questions because you wanted me to be prepared. So, you know, those are things that you need to do in order to be successful is be prepared. So mentally, I always prepared myself every day as if I was going to be the starting shortstop or the starting second baseman. And when the game started, the only thing that was different is I just didn't run out there. And then all of a sudden, my mentality would shift to, okay, I, 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 you basically have to watch the game as a, as a 
you know, second manager because you're watching the pitcher. How, how is he looking? Is he going to go deep in this game? When do I need to start getting prepared to pinch hit? When do I need to prepare to start for a double switch? Uh, you know, who's coming up in the lineup? Where's the hit? Where's the uh, pitcher hitting? Uh, is there a potential where I go into first base on a double switch? So there's a lot of things that go on there. But mentally, I mean, I know it's a long answer to a quick question, but I mentally got prepared to play every single day in the expectation of starting. I remember when I was watching you play and and whenever there was a utility player that I saw, it was, it always seemed to me like a a sort of a diamond in the rough or or a four leaf clover or something like that, because (laughs) it it was, it was like, wow, this guy can play everywhere. But nowadays it's like, if you don't play every single position, you may be out of a job. So how has it changed your, you know, your, uh, your style of play, so to speak, as a utility player, how, how has it changed up until the present day? Yeah, so you know you have to look at the game itself, and I think that the way the game has evolved, and whether it be analytics or whether it be style of play or you know generationally how athletes are becoming better, you know when I was playing, there was you know there's a set eight guys that would take the field, and then you had four or five guys that would be on the bench that had particular services as far as being the extra outfielder, the extra catcher, the extra infielder, right-handed, left-handed hitter. And, you know, that's how teams were constructed. They were constructed with the idea of I've got eight guys I'm going to throw out there every single day. I've got some backups that can relieve them every once in a while or come in in situations if they get injured and, and kind of fill the gap until they get healthy. But I think what we're seeing nowadays with guys is that – And if you watch a lot of these drafts and you look at a lot of these teams, they are drafting athletes and they're not necessarily drafting by position. Now, I know that kind of, you know, kind of contradicts if you're if you're drafting a pitcher, you're obviously drafting a pitcher for a particular reason. You just don't know if he's going to be a starter, middle relief or closer. And you kind of figure out that guy figures it out throughout the course of his minor league career, what he's going to be in the big leagues. But when we watch guys get drafted, we don't necessarily see center fielders get drafted and become center fielders every day in the big leagues. You know, there's very few like Mike Trout or George Springer. Well, George Springer came up as a right fielder. There's another guy who kind of shifted to center field because you start to put your best athletes on the field. And to that point, there's a really good example of it in the Astros organization. When Carlos Correa signed with the Houston Astros, he was the shortstop of the future. Uh, about two or three years later, they ended up drafting Alex Bregman sec- second in the draft, and he was a shortstop. And what happened? They moved him to third base to make their team that much better. They knew the guy could hit. They knew he could play some defense, but they decided that it, they would take the chance on an athlete moving to third as opposed to you know, maybe moving Carlos Correa or moving some other pieces. So I think that's what's happening this day and age is more of the athleticism of the player in baseball is coming. And then they, if they can hit, they'll just find a place for him because defense is valuable, but it's not valued as much as it was back in the day. Yeah. You just have to be serviceable at, at any yeah, one no, position. That's true. Um, that's one so thing. That's what, that's what's crazy. That's one thing that analytics really hasn't nailed down is, is, you know, defining what an elite defender is. Exactly. And, and I mean, you can use the eye test and, and know that a guy like Jock Peterson shouldn't be playing first base, but I, yes. I do love, I do love when they try out these players just at the big league level, like, Hey, like if you can play first base, if you can dig a few balls out of the dirt, like this is a good option for us. Or even, they even mm-hmm. tried uh, Mookie Betts over at second base that didn't work out, but it was like, <laughs> Hey, this guy's a really great athlete. Like you were saying, yeah. 
And they stuck him out there, and he's played a little bit of second base, I think, in the minors maybe, or maybe even the major league level at mm-hmm. some point. But it was like, if we have this tool, if we have this person in a pinch, it, it could go, it yep. can go a long way. No, and that that's you know, that's kind of like what you're saying in a pinch, or you know, everybody's talking matchups. If we could, you know, if I can move Mookie to second base, that means we can put another guy in the outfield. Another bat. Yes. So that's, you know, it's how do you put that puzzle together with as many good headers as you possibly can. And sometimes that means that you're trying to hide a guy on defense. (laughs) Yeah. And and it always, the ball always finds that guy too. Oh man. Baseball gods are watching, man. Yeah. (laughs) So Jeff, uh, just to kind of uh, round this out, I just want to get your, your, your final thoughts on, you know, you know, your career, what were your biggest takeaways as, um, as you, as you played the game, but then also you have a, a unique perspective as a broadcaster too. And just your, just your thoughts on uh, journeymen in, in general. Oh, uh, I'm, I'm just grateful for the opportunity. You know, we talked about, you know, picking a home or having a home and how unfortunate that is. But at the same time, I think it's great that I played 14 years, six different teams. I've seen every personality I've played for every manager possible. I've had as many hitting coaches as anybody's seen. Uh, so, you know, it kind of lends itself and maybe that's what was setting me up for, for being able to sit in the booth and have, uh, you know, a, a multitude of ideas about what's going on because I've been in so many different situations. I've been on winning teams, losing teams, great managers, bad managers, uh, good seasons, bad seasons, but you know, all that experience only make, hopefully makes me a better broadcaster. And that's what I try and draw from to, uh, adapt some of the situations I've been into the current day. Uh, you know, game that is being played because it is changing fast. It's changing drastically. And I'm lucky to be in an organization that has uh, been analytically forward where I can ask questions and learn a little bit more about the game. I think that's only enhancing our ability to go out there and and call a game. But uh, I think just the, the biggest word for me, and I always look back on it as hard as everything was, or as great as everything was, I was always grateful for the opportunity and uh, I look forward to what's coming down the road. And I think uh, baseball's in a unique spot right now, you know, with the COVID era, uh, the interesting free agent market that's coming up, uh, the 2021 season's going to be crazy, you know, depending on how that happens. And then the CBA's coming up too. So there's a lot of things happening in the game of baseball right now that I'm happy to be uh, kind of revolving around. Fantastic. If we could segue to the the current uh, Houston Astros. And just uh, full disclosure for anyone listening, uh, Jeff Blum obviously used to play for the Astros. He is the current broadcaster for the Astros. He's the color analyst on TV with Todd Callis. I also worked in Houston for a time from about 2016 to 2018, where I was a reporter for the NBC affiliate KPRC. And I covered the uh, 2017 World Series between the Dodgers and Astros. And growing up a Dodgers fan, it was sort of like the best of both worlds getting to cover the the team that you live with, the Houston Astros, and also the team that you grew up rooting for, the Dodgers. And this was the first time in my lifetime that I had seen the Dodgers play in the World Series. So it was crazy. Uh, And I also worked the morning shift. So I was going out of my mind at three o'clock in the morning thinking about baseball. Uh, It was was a fantastic time. And, And on the surface, Surface, I went to a, a number of games and on the surface, the series was a great series. It went seven games and there was a lot of emotions. I was at that game five that went oh, back wow. and forth yep. all the way through 
uh, that ended in extra innings. It was exhausting emotionally um, yep. and physically too, just sitting there. I wasn't <laughs> even playing, but I was sweating the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just want to talk to you as, as a person that has observed this team and obviously has observed the fallout of the uh, sign-stealing scandal um, that sort of blew up during spring training this past year. And being with the team during the shortened season and the pandemic, um, the Houston Astros have sort of uh, had this narrative of being of of playing through <clears throat> adversity. Is that the the entire world is against them? They are the villains. They're playing through um, this unpres- these unprecedented times with the added fact that they're you know trying to rebound from all of the news that broke in the off season. Um, what was your uh, your your perspective on covering this team of following this team throughout this season? It was one of the crazier things we've ever been through because, like you said, the beginning of the year started with Rob Manfred coming out with the sign-stealing report, uh, the Astros being reprimanded uh, as far as a team is concerned, not necessarily by the player, you know, for, by players. Um, you know, the firing of their general manager, the firing of a good friend and manager in AJ Hinch, and we get to spring training. Dusty Baker's the new manager. And, you know, you're trying to cover this team with all of this dark cloud hanging over them. They look miserable. Uh, You know, it was hard to get answers from them. It was hard to get close to them. I think they were skeptical of everybody who was around them, and rightfully so. And as an ex-player, I was trying to respect the fact that these guys are trying to get ready for a season under these circumstances. And then, boom, halfway through March, you know, everything is shut down. And then we enter, you know, as a, as a society, we enter you know, into a world of uncertainty and uh, fear, and we eventually find out they're going to play 60 games. Uh, they're going to be playing with no fans. Uh, the broadcast team is only going to be in the home ballpark, and when they go on the road, we're going to be calling games from the studio. So we were immediately you know, segregated from the team that we're used to covering so closely and develop relationships with, and that's what made it very tough for us. But you know, So all we had to go on was – maybe a, you know, a couple of texts here and there or a couple of Zoom conversations that we have with these guys. But uh, when we saw them in spring, they were not uh, looking too, too happy about things. The season started and it looked like they were grateful to be on the field and just playing the game and hopefully letting their, their ability talk instead of having to answer all of these questions. Uh, and then they get to the playoffs it, it, you know, and make a strong run and almost make it to the World Series. So you talk about a roller coaster of emotions and and things like that. I think that they did very well, and I'm kind of curious to see what 2020 brings if there are fans in the stands. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, point because a lot of people viewed the Astros in this way, and and I, you know, I I, I have a bias at, when it comes to this because of what what happened during the the 2017 World Series with the Dodgers. And this narrative that was created surrounding uh, Clayton Kershaw specifically and how his his career is looked at in a different light because of the struggles that he's had during the postseason and the fact that there were, you know, sign sign stealing um, things going on during that postseason was just it, it never sat well with me. And so a lot of fans are looking at the the Astros and they're thinking, okay, the players received immunity. They essentially didn't get uh, punished for what what they did. They get to keep which is their negotiated tight. by the union too. The union right. was in on this, yeah. right? Well, I'm talking about from just a fan's perspective. This mm-hmm. is how the, you know it's viewed, right? We we knew we knew they were going to receive immunity. It was told to us even before the investigation had happened. Um, 
And then you have the the shortened season, no fans in the stands. We you, we saw what the Astros were were going to be receiving had there been fans in the stands when we saw a few spring training games of what it was going to be like. And yep. then the expanded playoffs allowed them to get into the postseason with a an under 500 record. So a lot of people are looking at the at the Astros and 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 they're saying to themselves these these guys want to act like they're the victims and act like they're playing through adversity, but but really they were the ones that you know created the problem in the first place. Where do you fall on some on on that argument? Um, you know, well, the first thing with Clayton Kershaw, I, I I've got my own podcast called Bleacher Blums, where me and a buddy talked about Clayton Kershaw, and I kind of came out and said, you know, I'm kind of. I'm not, I'm not down with talking about Clayton Kershaw as a victim. This dude is good. And I know that winning the World Series kind of validates that, but the guy's good, man. Even through the rough times where everybody expected him to throw no hitters every time he went out there, I'm still going, man, this guy's competing. And you got to think about Clayton Kershaw in the playoffs. When you get to the playoffs, who are you playing? You are playing the best of the best. And you're not going to be perfect every night. You're going to be facing the best lineups in the major leagues when you're playing in the playoffs. And then you ran into the Astros, who are playing, who are a very talented team, but then they may have been enhanced a little bit. And I understand that. But I've never been in the camp of poor Clayton Kershaw. I think Clayton Kershaw is a badass. I don't care if it was a regular season or the postseason. That guy was legit. And every time he stepped on the mound, there was a, there was a presence and there was an air of, of potential dominance. It didn't always work out that way, but it hasn't worked out that way for a lot of great pitcher, pitchers in the past. So I, I'm, I'm in the camp of Clayton Kershaw as a Hall of Famer. He's great in the postseason. No doubt. He finally got a ring, which I think he deserves, and uh, hopefully we can move on and everybody in Los Angeles can can admire him and respect him the way he deserves to be. I think we same- all I think we all finally were were so happy oh, and relieved to to finally have. I mean, just. The, when you saw the final out recorded and you looked in the bullpen and you saw just the look of relief and just yeah. joy on his face was just everything that we had hoped for for him. And to that point, I think Kershaw obviously <laughs> set the bar so high yeah. for himself that when you exactly. know he faltered in the playoffs, it was magnified. Yeah, I completely 100% agree with that. And then you take into account... You know, we talked about making, uh, you know, one of these teams your home. Guess what? Clayton Kershaw has made L.A. his home. So there's a certain amount of pride and probably a relief in the sense that he got to to wear a ring and wear a championship with that Dodger across his, the front of his uniform. I mean, I can't imagine how gratifying that's got to be for him, knowing that his career with the Dodgers led to all these World Series appearances and eventually led to a World Series championship. So I give him credit for that. But, uh, you know, it, it, it is a shame that the Astros were caught up in a situation where they were taking advantage of, of, of you know, what uh, electronics and video to get real-time sign stealing, not just in the sense that maybe it, it tainted or tarnished what Kershaw was trying to do or the Dodgers, but at the same time, think about what it did to their championship. It, it completely tainted it and, and scarred that championship in 2017 forever. And and I and I felt bad uh, for a lot of people because I I you know have a lot of friends that are still living in Houston and mm-hmm. a lot of friends that I know that are Astros fans die hard were with them through thick and thin and I felt badly for them on the heels of what happened with Hurricane Harvey yes, because you're so because, right because the height of 2017 was winning the World Series for that city and it was just huge. 
And for that championship to be as tainted as you're saying it is, and as we know it is, it's just unfortunate because I felt when I looked at the Astros and when I looked at them this year in the playoffs, I'm like, this is a damn good team. They, they've got superstars on this team. And, and I have a feeling that they could have beaten the Dodgers and beaten the Nationals or beaten the whoever, the Red Sox, without sign stealing. They have the talent. And so that was what was so um, disheartening to see, which is, is that, they, you know, it's not like the Detroit Tigers are all of a sudden <laughs> becoming this juggernaut out of nowhere. I mean, the Astros have these terrific all-star MVP caliber players. And so that's when I look at what, what happened and what has transpired since then, that's what I, that's what I look at most. No. And and rightfully so. And it's going to take a lot, it's going to take a long time to try and, and peel that back and, and allow people to accept that they are good. I'm with you in the sense that, uh, you know, the pain of hurricane Harvey was taken away by the world series championship. And then the sign stealing kind of put the pain back into it. But at the same time, it's amazing to me, like you said, in 2019, the Astros are good enough to beat the Washington Nationals. They were eight outs away from proving their worth, but nobody will ever believe that they are as good as they are because of that one season in 2017. And it is a shame because the, and I'm obviously a little bit more biased than most because I'm around these guys. I, I get to get my hands on them. I get to talk to them. I get to know about them. I see them around town because some of them, some of them actually live here, but uh, it, it hurts me to see them hurting because they're such good guys too. On top of it, they got caught up in something bad, uh, were unable to handle it. It got exposed, and they're paying the price for it. Finally, on this note, and then we can wrap it up. What do you think it's going to take, or or will it ever be? Will there ever be a scenario where people aren't looking down at the Astros for what happened? in 2017, 2018, like, is there, is there, is there a point at which, you know, time heals all wounds or what do you think needs to occur in order for them not to be the, the new New York Yankees of baseball? I don't know. Uh, you know, I've thought about this a couple times and, and maybe had some, you know, brilliant ideas that turned out to be not so brilliant as the more I thought about them. But uh, I think in watching what's going on is that you've got a very you know, proud owner in Jim Crane who worked hard to get a ball club, uh, hired what he felt was the best general manager in baseball in Jeff Luno, uh, trusted the process, drafted extremely well, developed extremely well, and got a, got a World Series contending team together and then put a great manager at the top in A.J. Hinch, and it, it was blown apart. So I think it's going to take a long time. I think it's something that's going to be talked about for a while. And I think it's going to be, as far as time, I think it's going to be another decade before we start to hear from players during this, this era of baseball, where they start to come out and go, they feel comfortable enough because they're out of the game and they've, they've made their money and they've made their mark and they can go, guess what? I played with the Milwaukee Brewers and we were cheating too. I played for the Toronto Blue Jays and guess what? We were doing the same thing. We were just doing it in a different way. I think that's what it's going to take to kind of take some of the sting out of what the Astros were doing. But I don't believe it's going to happen until some of the guys from this era actually have have run their course throughout the game, retired, had time to reflect, and feel comfortable enough saying something later on. I don't know if that will ever happen, but that would be my idea. 
So you're hoping for like a I'm Spartacus moment where everyone is just yeah. pitching we're in like, hey, man, you guys, you know, we, we appreciate you throwing the Astros under the bus. But guess what? We were doing it, too. We just didn't do it as good. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Jeff Blum, for joining us on Meeting on the Mound. This was an awesome conversation. Your perspective, not only as a player, but a broadcaster was super cool to uh, to get all of that on tape and just a really great conversation. And thank you for playing ball with all, all the Astros stuff. I know that's not easy to talk about, but just a fantastic conversation. And thank you so much. It was great to be here. And, uh, you know, my go away is always thank you for the opportunity. Mm-hmm.